Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah Class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew Roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number 23, Daniel chapter 8, continued. Last week we started our examination of one of the more difficult chapters in Daniel, if not the entire Bible. Daniel chapter 8. And we're not going to nearly get finished with it this week. And perhaps this is a good time to explain something that you've no doubt already noticed. I'm teaching you the Bible, not prophecy. And learning the Bible is a more challenging task than hearing a prophecy teacher like Hal Lindsey, for example, tell you what they think various prophecies mean, how they're going to play out. Prophecy teachers draw from many passages all over the Bible, put them in a certain order that they think the passages ought to go, and then they draw on current events to put together and validate their particular storyline and conclusions. And the nature of what they do, however honorable, involves a great deal of personal speculation. However, I'm neither a prophet nor a prophecy teacher. So I'm presenting you the book of Daniel as Holy Scripture. Noting that some of Daniel is historical, some of it's prophetic. And at the moment, we are in the section of Daniel that deals primarily with prophecy. I'm not going to build a storyline and add current events to try and explain how all of Daniel's prophecies are going to turn out. And thus what the end times will look like because it's simply not in the Bible. Rather, we're generally only going to go so far as the Bible tells us. Now I'm going to add a little history in the case of prophecies that have already been fulfilled. And because what we're doing together is challenging and it's complex and it's probably different from what you're used to in hearing about prophecy, I think the best thing to do today is to see if we can summarize what's been presented in the last couple of lessons, hopefully in a way that makes it easier to to remember, to understand. I mean, you do want to understand end times prophecy as presented by God's Word, right? Okay. Then understanding the book of Daniel as best we can, including this maze and puzzle that is chapter 8, is a key ingredient. But we also have to accept that not every question we have will be answered for us. And I want to keep speculation to the barest minimum. What makes chapter 8 so vexing is that we have some new and different symbolism for some already established symbolisms from earlier chapters. The trick is to draw lines between each of these symbolic elements, determine what they mean, and then connect them. Because what we're reading about is a prophetic revelation that's given to us progressively. And so, as we move along, 
We are given more information that builds upon previously given information. And hopefully, this associated chart will help to put it together for you. Let's begin by rereading a portion of uh, Daniel chapter 8. We're going to start in verse 12, which is on page 1111, if you have a complete Jewish Bible. Starting with chapter uh, with verse twelve. Actually, I think we're going. To, no, I'm sorry. We're going to back up. We're going to read the first twelve verses again. That's what we're going to do. I wrote that down wrong. After that, which is on page eleven ten. After that first vision in the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar. Another vision appeared to me, Daniel. And I looked into the vision, and as I looked, I found myself in Shushan, the capital in the province of Elam, and I looked into the vision, and I was by the Ulai Canal. I looked up. And as I watched, there in front of the stream stood a ram with two horns. The horns were long, but one was longer than the other, and the longer one came up later than the other. I saw the ram pushing to the west, north, and south, and no animals could stand up against it, nor was there anyone that could rescue from its power. So it did as it pleased. It became very strong. And I was beginning to understand when a male goat came from the west, passing over the whole earth without touching the ground, and the goat had a prominent horn between its eyes. And it approached the ram with the two horns which I had seen standing in front of the river and it charged it with savage force I watched as it advanced on the ram filled with rage against it and struck the ram breaking its two horns the ram was powerless to stand against it it threw the ram to the ground and it trampled it down and there was no one that could rescue it from the goat's power then the male goat became extremely strong but when it was strong the big horn was broken and in its place arose what appeared to be four horns in the directions of the four winds of heaven and out of one of them came a little horn which grew extremely big in the directions of the south and the east and in the direction of the glory it grew so great that it reached the army of heaven it hurled some of the army and the stars to the ground it trampled on them yes it even considered itself as great as the prince of the army the regular bird offering was taken away from him and the place of his sanctuary was thrown down and through sin the army was put in its power along with the regular bird offering it flung truth on the ground as it acted and prospered look at this chart Notice that what we have up through Daniel chapter 8 is different visions that we're trying to harmonize. And these three different visions are given to us in three different chapters. Chapters 2, chapter 7, chapter 8. The first vision presented to us in the book of Daniel occurred in chapter 2. It was a vision given to King Nebuchadnezzar. The vision of the statue that consisted of four different metals. The head was made of bronze. The chest and arms were made of silver. (coughs) The trunk and hips were made of bronze and the legs were made of iron. But another element of the statue is that it has feet. And these feet were made of a mixture of iron and clay. And further, a mysterious rock 
comes flying out of nowhere to smash this entire statue to smithereens. And since we're reviewing and summarizing, then here is what King Nebuchadnezzar's statue is symbolizing. It is a message from God that in the ensuing years there will be four world empires. Each empire or kingdom is represented by a particular portion of that statue. These empires are Gentile controlled and administered by Gentiles. They are not Hebrew empires. In fact, these four Gentile empires are set up against Israel and thus against the coming kingdom of God. The only representative kingdom on earth that has been or will ever be a shadow and a pattern of the kingdom of God is Israel. And in biblical times, Israel lasted as a united kingdom for only 80 years under kings David and Solomon. Then upon Solomon's death, a civil war ensued and the kingdom of Israel became split into two independent kingdoms. Israel to the north, Judah to the south. This kingdom to the north eventually became known as Ephraim. Now as of the time of Daniel, both Israel and Judah had been sent off for exile because of their sins against the Lord. And their primary sin was idolatry. Israel consisted of ten Hebrew tribes that were scattered and they became known as the legendary ten lost tribes of Israel. Israel was conquered by Assyria around 725 BC. This is 175 years before the time of Daniel. They were thrown out of the promised land. They were strewn all over the Asian continent. And the period of their exile was to be long and indefinite and their regathering was prophesied to only finally occur in the end times. And by the way, that regathering of the ten tribes is occurring right now in our time. So you do the math as to where we are in biblical and human history. And a word to the wise. Perhaps we all ought to order our lives and think about our relationship with God accordingly. In time, the Babylonians conquered the Assyrians and took over the kingdom. Next, the Babylonians conquered Judah, the remaining portion of the kingdom of Israel. And then they exiled them to Babylon. Daniel was part of the original Jewish exiles. Now these exiles were not scattered. Rather, they were taken generally intact as a community and they were allowed to live together in Babylon as a community of Jews. It was prophesied that their exile would only last for 70 years and then they'd return to their homeland. 
Now since we are dealing with the prophetic part of the book of Daniel and since the various visions recounted in the book are of course future oriented then naturally the first Gentile empire of the four that is symbolically represented is Babylon because Daniel's living in Babylon. However, the various visions reveal that the Babylonian Empire will, in a rather short time, and actually during Daniel's lifetime, be defeated. And it will be replaced by another empire. And we learned that Nebuchadnezzar's dream statue's head of gold represents... Babylon. And the silver chest and arms represent the empire that replaces Babylon, and that empire is Media Persia. The third empire in sequence is the one represented by the bronze hips and, and trunk, and that's Greece, which conquers the Media Persian Empire. And the fourth empire that's represented by the legs of iron turned out to be the Roman Empire but a lot of time had to pass in history before we found that out. Then we get to the feet of the statue that's made of that strange mixture of iron and clay. And the truth is, as of now, we don't know who those feet represent because it certainly appears that the powerful empire or nation depicted by those feet of clay and iron is still future to us. We're living in the 21st century. Nonetheless, there's no lack of speculation about it among Bible scholars and pastors and novelists and there are those prophecy teachers who are certain that they know who that final kingdom will be. They say that the feet of iron and clay is a revived but updated version of the Roman Empire. Probably the EU, the European Union. My position is that this is unlikely. But anything is possible, so I can't entirely discount it. Now I'm not going to deal right now with why I'm skeptical that the feet of iron and clay is a revived Roman Empire, but I'll get to it in time. So the first vision of the future about these four world empires is given to God, given by God to King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon, and Daniel does the interpretation of it for him. That's in Daniel chapter 2. But later, some years after Nebuchadnezzar's dead and a few kings of Babylon have come and gone, King Belshazzar of Babylon sits on the throne. And in the first year of Belshazzar's reign, Daniel now receives his own vision. Understand that this was the first vision given to Daniel, even though it's the second vision in the book of Daniel. You with me? Because the first vision was given to Nebuchadnezzar. The second vision was given to Daniel, but it would turn out he'd have two. Okay? In Daniel's first vision, he was shown a series of four beasts. 
The first beast was like a lion, but it wasn't a lion. The second beast was like a bear, but it wasn't a bear. The third was like a leopard, but it wasn't a leopard. And the fourth beast is given no animal likeness at all. It is said that this beast was totally different from the first three beasts. And it was the most dangerous, the most violent, the most powerful of them all. And it had ten horns on its head. The ten horns symbolized ten kingdoms with their kings. However, then a little horn sprouted and it displaced three of those original ten horns. So for a moment, there's eleven horns. But then when the little horn gains power, the surviving horns, the kings, numbered only eight. Seven of the original plus that little horn that popped up. Now this little horn was said to have a mouth that spoke blasphemy against the Lord. And it had eyes that symbolized wisdom and enlightenment and an ability to know everything that was going on around it. It's generally believed that this little horn, a ruler of unprecedented power and ability, represents the Antichrist of the end times. And so that is still future to us. And I agree with this assessment. But please notice that this vision in Daniel chapter 7, in it there's no mention, no mention of a final world kingdom that's represented in Nebuchadnezzar's dream as the feet of iron and clay. It's just simply not addressed in either this vision of Daniel nor his next one. To be as clear as I can, the gold head that is Babylon is symbolized in Daniel's first vision as a lion beast. The silver arms and chest is symbolized in his vision as a bear beast, and that is Media Persia. The bronze hips and trunk that is symbolized in Nebuchadnezzar's vision is Greece, and that symbolized in Daniel's vision as a four-headed leopard. And the iron legs that are Rome are symbolized in Daniel's vision as a beast, an unnamed beast that has ten horns on its head, but then later a little horn sprouts up and does away with three of the original ten. Well, now we move to Daniel chapter 8. This is the second vision given to Daniel, even though it's the third vision that we receive in the book of Daniel. But it's Daniel's second vision. And lo and behold, just to confuse us a little bit more, we get yet another set of symbols regarding the identities of these Gentile world empires. However, in reality, Daniel only deals with two of these empires. Daniel chapter 8, rather. Daniel chapter 8 only deals with two of these empires. So we're only given two additional symbols. A ram and a goat. 
The ram has two horns that symbolizes two kings. It's two separate kingdoms. And the goat has one large horn symbolizing one king presiding over one large kingdom. The ram represents Media Persia. And the goat represents Greece who conquered Media Persia. So to be clear, Babylon, the first world kingdom, is not discussed at all in Daniel chapter 8, Daniel's second vision, and neither is the fourth world kingdom, Rome, discussed in Daniel chapter 8. So in Daniel chapter 8, we're dealing with only two of the four world empires, Media, Persia, and Greece. And what we learn is that because this ram has one horn that's longer than the other one, this means that one of the two kingdoms that together forms this second world empire of Media and Persia, one of them is going to be more powerful than the other. And it turns out Persia was a bit more powerful than Media. Now the next thing we learn is that the goat with one large horn will eventually have that horn broken off. This means that this all-powerful king of Greece would be destroyed and in place of that one large horn, four smaller ones would emerge. That is, the empire of Greece that at one time was ruled by one immensely powerful man who was Alexander the Great would upon his death, that kingdom would upon its death be sliced up into four governing districts ruled by a group of four rulers. But then one of those four horns, one of those four rulers will lose his power to a smaller horn that eventually grows very powerful. And history proved that when Alexander the Great died, four of his generals ruled over the four governing governing districts that were established. And then in time, one of them, powerful man, was replaced by a man of little power. And no doubt this was supernaturally arranged by the God of Israel to achieve his purposes. And then this little horn ruled over Egypt and it ruled over the promised land. He was infamously hostile and cruel to the Jewish people and eventually desecrated the holy temple and he dissolved the priesthood. His name was Antiochus Epiphanes. So, one more time. We're going to get this straight. And in the order of which these four world empires will appear, Babylon is the golden head of the statue. It's also the lion beast. Media Persia is the silver arms and chest of the statue, but it's also the bear beast, but it's also represented by the ram with two horns. All those things represent Media Persia. Greece is the bronze hips and uh, trunk and hips. Also, it's the four-headed leopard. Also, it's then represented by the goat with one large horn that eventually got four. And Rome is the iron legs and it's also the unnamed beast with the ten horns. All four of these Gentile kingdoms have come and gone in history exactly as Daniel prophesied. All that is left to be fulfilled all that is left 
to be fulfilled of this is the emergence of the nation or nations represented by the feet made of iron and clay. And as of today, we don't know who that is, even though some say it's a revived Roman Empire. Now, although this event must be future to us, it may well be emerging right now. As we speak, I must be candid, however, and tell you that at least one major branch of Christianity believes that this, that even this empire of the feet of clay and iron has come and gone. So there's no universal agreement about this. But I also must be equally candid with you that the sole reason that this one branch of Christianity believes this way is that it must be so or most of their doctrines are proven to be false. So regardless of how history is played out, how impossible is their scenario, how much allegory is required to make it work, they are determined to stick to it. But such is the nature and danger of dealing with theological doctrines and prophecy and especially unfulfilled prophecy. Then we face a troubling question. Is the little horn of Daniel's fourth beast, the fourth beast said to be Rome, is this the same as the little horn that sprouted on the head of this goat beast? I can tell you that many prophecy teachers say, oh yeah, oh yeah, it has to be. Same horn. Now once again, it must be so for them because if it's not, all their doctrines fall apart. On its face, it cannot be that the two little horns are the same. Can't be. Not the least of which is that they obviously are brought forth from two different world empires. The little horn with the blasphemous mouth that comes riding upon Daniel's fourth unnamed beast, but but the one that is different from the one that, that becomes great and rules over Egypt and the promised land because it comes riding upon the head of the third kingdom that comes out of Greece. However, I do believe that they symbolize essentially the same thing. It's just, and this is going to be a little tough, it's just that what these two little horns do happens twice. One is a foreshadow of the other. The Bible establishes a pattern of a biblical prophecy being fulfilled and then later is fulfilled again, but on an even greater scale. Let's talk about that pattern, especially as it concerns the two separate but similar little horns. First, we're going to have to review a principle that I taught you several lessons ago concerning Daniel chapter 2. And it is that the Bible and Daniel speaks of two distinct and different latter days. 
and that the latter days aren't necessarily the same thing as the end times. <coughs> the Hebrew words for the latter days are achrit hayamim. Achrit hayamim. But when lifted out of context and stood alone, the term is only referring to some undefined future time. Any future time. However, in the Bible, when it's taken in context, the phrase is always in reference to a messianic kingdom. And that is true even if the initial manifestation of of a specific latter days kingdom prophecy might not be in messianic times. We see that like with Jacob prophesying the outcome of the twelve tribes in Genesis 49. But then a later manifestation of that same prophecy will involve the Messiah. As an illustration of this pattern, think of the coming of Yeshua around the first part, maybe up to 30 AD, and he accomplished part of his prophesied mission, but not all of it. And he did that before he was executed, and he arose, and he ascended to heaven. But the fulfillment of the remainder of the prophecies concerning Messiah only happens after his second coming. And that's still future to us. So they happen, these prophecies of Messiah happen, but they happen in two distinct stages, centuries apart. So here is an important principle concerning biblical prophecies about the latter days. For the people who were alive before Messiah came the first time, the latter days, their Achrit Hayamim, was future to them. For them, Yeshua's first coming would have been their latter days. Because they were looking ahead to that first coming. What they didn't know then was that the latter days would manifest itself more than once. And there would be a second manifestation of latter days. It would happen far into the future as Messiah would leave and then come again for a second appearance. Now for us in the 21st century, Messiah Yeshua's first coming is ancient history. It happened 2,000 years ago. It's something we look joyfully back upon. For us, the latter days means when Yeshua returns to us. It's the anticipation we have for when he comes a second time. So in the Bible, there is a first latter days that points to Messiah's first coming. And there is a second latter days that points to Messiah's prophesied second coming. The first latter days has come and gone. The second latter days is ahead of us. These are prophecies about each... Rather, there are prophecies about each of these latter days, but until... Christ came and went. It was nearly impossible to separate them. Both are fully valid. But as of now, only one of these has occurred. And the first one, his first coming, is a shadow and a pattern of the second one. 
Now as hard as all that might be whole, uh, hard to, uh, to grasp hold of, this is a firm biblical principle about how prophecy often works. And as a matter of fact, it's probably the one that causes the most challenge in dealing with biblical prophecy. And this principle is front and center in dealing with Daniel's prophecies. And it's also why we'll find various interpretations that result in various end times theologies. So in Daniel, what we have are two separate visions, both involving little horns. The little horns are quite similar. They both behave in blasphemous ways. They're both determined to eradicate the Jewish people and the Jewish ideal. But they aren't the same horn, the same person. And key to our understanding is they don't appear, these two little horns, at the same time. The little horn that grows upon the head of the goat is unequivocally associated in Daniel chapter 8 with that third world kingdom of Greece. The little horn that grows upon Daniel's strange unnamed beast with the ten horns in Daniel chapter 7 is directly associated, we don't have to guess, with the fourth world kingdom, which we find out through history is Rome. Therefore, there's no way they can be the same little horn. Even if they have the same attributes and behave in mostly the same way. So here's how we put this together. The little horn of Greece, the goat, was from Daniel's perspective looking ahead to that first latter days, the first coming of Christ. And the little horn of the fourth beast of Daniel chapter 7 was looking even further ahead to the second latter days. The second coming of Christ. Confusing enough for us? Impossible for Daniel to have imagined it and figured it out. It's no wonder he called in sick for the next few days after getting these visions. So history, not the Bible, history reveals that that little horn that comes from the Greek Empire turned out to be Antiochus Epiphanes. However, the other little horn, the one that comes from the Roman Empire, well, that's still in our future. The common name used today for that little horn is the Antichrist. And who that is... History hasn't revealed it yet. And yet, the Roman Empire, that fourth world kingdom from which that little horn says the Antichrist is supposed to be produced, it's come and gone. Hmm. So how can it be Rome that produces that little horn? The Antichrist. Well, Revelation 13 helps us here. But once again, we have to take the Bible for what it says. Not take some passages and then ignore others to try and validate some popular in-time storyline or doctrinal agenda. And that's not an easy task. So, open your Bibles to Revelation 13. Revelation 13. 
We're going to read the first eight verses. If you have a complete Jewish Bible, it's page 1544. Revelation chapter 13, the first eight verses. I'm going to back up just to the last verse of Revelation 12, just to, because that should have been part of Revelation 13. Then, I, then the dragon stood on the seashore, and I saw a beast come up out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads. And on its horns were ten royal crowns, and on its head were blasphemous names. The beast which I saw was like a leopard, but it had feet like a bear, mouth like the mouth of a lion. And to the dragon it gave its power, its throne, and its great authority, and one of the heads of the beast appeared to have received a fatal wound. But its fatal wound was healed. And the whole earth followed after the beast in amazement. And they worshipped the dragon because he had given his authority to the beast. And they worshipped the beast saying, Who is like the beast? Who can fight against it? It was given a mouth speaking arrogant blasphemies. It was given authority to act for 42 months. So it opened his mouth in blasphemies against God to insult his name and his uh, Shekinah, Shekinah and those living in heaven. And it was allowed to make war on God's holy people and to defeat them. And it was given authority over every tribe and people and language and nation and everyone living on earth will worship it except those whose names are written in the book of life belonging to the Lamb slaughtered before the world was founded. Those who have ears, let them hear. There can be no reasonable debate. The book of Revelation, this chapter 13, is self-evidently speaking about a second latter days. How can I be so sure? (laughs) Because after all, John wrote this at least a half a century after Christ's death. So the first latter days had passed away well into history before he ever wrote this. So what John saw in his divine revelation was for a future time. Or as many, by the way, in his day thought, perhaps their present time. In fact, we have many liberal Bible scholars today advocate that John was speaking in coded language about the Roman Empire. And that Nero was John's beast and Daniel's second little horn. But these are the same ones that proclaim, interestingly, that Daniel's a Jewish fraud anyway. And in our time, many Christian evangelical prophecy teachers say that John's revelation beast is the same, the same as the fourth beast, this beast, of Daniel's vision. And I'm here to tell you they're not the same. Not according to Scripture, they're not the same. A plain and careful reading of Daniel's own words also shows that they're not. How is that fourth beast of Daniel 7 described? It's described as having no animal likeness and having ten horns on how many heads? One. 
And here, how is the Revelation 13 beast described? As having the likeness of a leopard and of a bear and of a lion and having how many heads? Seven and ten horns or crowns. Same symbolism. The thing you see that connects this Revelation beast with the book of Daniel beast is that the Revelation 13 beast is a hybrid of all four beasts in Daniel's vision. A lion, a bear, a leopard, and that strange unnamed beast with the ten horns. And the total number of heads on all four of those beasts from Daniel's vision is seven. One for the lion, one for the bear, four for the leopard, one for the unnamed beast. Added together you get seven. Which is the same number of heads on the Revelation 13 beast if you combine them all. So the Daniel 7 little horn the one that's produced from the fourth world empire, Rome, seems to be the future Antichrist and it relates to the second latter days, the days leading up to the second coming of Messiah, his return. The Revelation 13 beast helps us to see that while the little horn itself, again probably the Antichrist, will indeed have some relationship to the former Roman Empire, the totality of that beast represents the kingdom or government of the Antichrist, but it will not be only of Rome. So it can't be a revived Roman Empire when we know all those beasts represent four kingdoms, four past Gentile kingdoms. It's going to be formed from the remnants of all of the four past kingdoms of Babylon, Media, Persia, Greece, and Rome because all of their symbols, the lion, the bear, the leopard, and the beast with ten horns, are used in the makeup of John's Revelation 13 beast. There it is right before us. The little horn from Daniel chapter 8 is directly assigned to the third world empire who's Greece. Daniel 8.21 says the shaggy male goat's the king of Greece. Anybody want to argue about it? <clears throat> so there's no guesswork needed. And that little horn turned out to be Antiochus Epiphanes who did precisely what Daniel prophesied he'd do in Daniel chapter 8 10 through 12. And this, of course, relates to the first latter days. Got a few hundred years before Christ comes for the first time. Daniel chapter 8, 10 through 12 says, It, the little horn, grew so great that it reached the army of heaven. It hurled some of the army and the stars to the ground and it trampled on them. Yes, it even considered itself as great as the prince of the army. The regular burnt offering was taken away from him and the place of his sanctuary was thrown down. And through sin, the army was put in its power along with the regular burnt offering. It flung truth on the ground as it acted and prospered. And the key verse in this... Verse 12 is in the complete Jewish Bible, a very tortured and poor translation. So to get a better handle on it, here's a far better one from the Jewish Publication Society. 
Daniel 8.12 And the host was given over to the little horn together with the continual burnt offering through transgression and it was cast down it cast down truth to the ground and it wrought and it prospered. In other words, the little horn of Daniel chapter 8 is going to be given full power over the Jewish people called the host and also full power over the temple and over the temple worship including its sacrifices. Here it's called the burnt offering. And that is exactly what happened. And it is exactly what Epiphanes did and it's even recorded for us in 1st Maccabees. Now we read some of it last week. So I'm only going to reread a few verses so that we connect, can connect the dots. This is in 1st Maccabees chapter 1 starting at verse 10. And I'm going to jump around a little bit. Verse 10. From these there grew a wicked offshoot, Antiochus Epiphanes, son of King Antiochus. Once a hostage in Rome, he became king in the 107th year of the kingdom of the Greeks. It was then that there emerged from Israel a set of renegades who led many people astray. Come, they said, let us ally ourselves with these Gentiles surrounding us, for since we separated ourselves from them, many misfortunes have overtaken us. This proposal proved acceptable, and a number of the people eagerly approached the king, who authorized them to practice the Gentiles' observances. Skipping down to verse 20 in 1 Maccabees 1. After his conquest of Egypt in the year 143, Antiochus turned about and advanced on Israel and Jerusalem in massive strength. Innocently, uh, rather, insolently, not innocently, insolently, breaking into the sanctuary, he removed the golden altar and the lampstand for the light with all of its fittings, together with the table for the loaves of permanent offering, the libation vessels, the cups, the golden censers, the veil, the crowns, and the golden decoration on the front of the temple, which he stripped of everything. Moving down to verse 44. The king also sent edicts by messenger to Jerusalem and to the towns of Judah, directing them to adopt the customs foreign to their country, banning the burnt offerings, sacrifices, and libations from the sanctuary, profaning the Sabbaths and the feasts, defiling the sanctuary and everything holy, building altars and shrines and temples for idols, sacrificing pigs and unclean beasts, leaving their sons uncircumcised, prostituting themselves to all kinds of impurity and abomination so that they should forget the law and revoke all observance of it. Anyone not obeying the king's command was to be put to death. So as predicted in Daniel 8, 10-12, the hosts, God's servants on earth, the Jews, were flung to the ground by this little horn. The temple was invaded. It was taken over. Other gods were worshipped. And sacrifices to those gods began in the temple. But the Torah sacrifices to Jehovah ended. Teaching of the Torah ended. And it was replaced with politically correct doctrines that the government of the little horn, Antiochus Epiphanes, ordained. And many Jews who just wanted to go along to get along readily accepted all of these perverted things and regarded them as holy and acceptable to the God of Israel. 
Let's read a little bit more from Daniel chapter 8. We're going to read just a couple of verses, 13 and 14. Then I heard a holy one speaking, and another holy one said to the speaker, How long will the events of this vision last? This vision concerning the regular offering and the transgression, which is so appalling, that allows the sanctuary and the army to be trampled underfoot. And the first said to me, 2,300 evenings and mornings, after which the sanctuary will be restored to its rightful state. Well, here we enter yet another mysterious and challenging circumstance. In Daniel's vision, someone described in Hebrew as a Echad Kadosh. This Echad Kadosh was speaking, and another Echad Kadosh turned to the first one and asked him a question. And the complete Jewish Bible correctly and most literally translates Echad Kadosh to Holy One. Kadosh, Holy, Echad, One. Many English Bible versions translate Echad Kadosh to saints. And then at times goes so far as to explain in its footnotes, or it just leaves the unmistakable implication that these saints are of course the church. That's just simply incorrect. There is another Hebrew term that is Am Chadosh. And that basically means holy people. And it's probably reasonable to translate that to saints provided we don't take the term saints to mean church in every context at least. So here in Daniel 8 the term is Echad Kadosh, holy ones. And it most definitely is speaking to some spiritual beings they're part of Daniel's vision. Now, the question that this one Echad Kadosh asks the other one is fascinating. How long will the regular burnt offering and the defiling of the temple and the oppression against all those who serve the God of Israel, how long will this be allowed to continue? The answer that is given is 2300 evenings and mornings. So, does this mean 2,300 days? Perhaps, but I don't think so. See, the subject of the question regards the regular offerings. And there were two daily sacrificial offerings to be made at the temple without fail. And not surprisingly, they were called the evening offering and the morning offering. So when the response to how long before the regular offerings are restored is there will be 2,300 evenings and mornings, it's speaking of 2,300 evening and morning offerings. Not 2,300 days. At two offerings per day, that means that for 1150 days the two per day temple offerings will be outlawed by Epiphanes and then at the end of that time the temple will be restored to its rightful state and then these evening and mornings will begin again did that happen? oh you bet it did 
and a special holiday commemoration was established when the regular morning and evening offerings at the temple began again. Hanukkah. And we're going to discuss this restoration of the temple worship and learn some more about Antiochus Epiphanes and continue with Daniel chapter 8 next time.